Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent, fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm sitting down today with two different guests. I'm sitting down with Michael and Susan McNeely. I've had Mike on the show two times now, and we've had some pretty interesting conversations. He gets me to admit a lot of things that I have never said on the show before. We get to find out some interesting uh, behind-the-scenes tidbits on that show. But I want you to introduce yourself, Susan, and kind of share how you got introduced to the IFB movement and what your initial experiences were in that world. I was born into the IFB like my brother. I was born into the Fairhaven culture and I grew up there until I was about 16 and a half and then my dad resigned and we moved to Michigan where we went to another IFB church, but a lot less cult. And then my dad was an um, associate pastor there. And I then just struggled with the whole church idea and struggled with pants and asking my dad questions. And so I, I just... I went to another church and then after that I just gave up and stopped going and then have just I've gone to like non-denominational churches but still don't really know what exactly I believe yet what part of it you still keep with you what part of it's going to change right and- would you say that your initial experience was positive where you didn't, because obviously we grew up in it. Sometimes you don't know that there's anything different. Would you say your initial experience was positive? Did it feel negative right off the bat? What was your emotional reaction to that world at an early age? I just remember not really knowing anything was different. I remember in high school finding out for the first time that other Christian schools didn't spank kids or other schools didn't spank kids as we were spanked. And 
I didn't know any different. I didn't know we grew up right on the campus in the men's dorm and there was a massive campus there, a lake. And so we played there, ate there, lived there, did everything there. So I really didn't get out and into the whole world in culture until I left Fairhaven when I was 16. And then it was a culture shock. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, obviously you start noticing, once you start getting around other people, you start noticing, oh, there's little differences or quirks (laughs) and things like that. But when was the first time you noticed that there was something like a little more seriously wrong or that maybe everything wasn't sunshine and roses and we maybe we aren't this flawless organization that can do no wrong? I I struggled in high school, even at Fairhaven, but you really weren't allowed to. So I just held it down for the most part. And then when I was about 20 years old, I told my parents that I had been sexually abused by my brother, David. And from then on out, it was it was not handled correctly at all. And that is what pushed me away from that's what started helping me see that this whole organization or whatever you want to call them is not helpful and actually made it worse in the end for me and is a toxic environment and I didn't want it in my life anymore. And when you say it wasn't handled correctly at all, like how was it handled? What was the response to that information? And how was it handled improperly? Let me give you some backstory to what had happened briefly, because I know that Michael's heart is not, we're not here to bash my family or bash where we grew up or anything like that, but we're here to help other families who've been through similar situations who maybe are at the start of their situation and could use some help on what not to do and what did help. So it started when I was about five years old and it went on till I was 16 years old. And throughout that time, it was sporadic. And there was a time in high school that we went to Canada and my parents wanted to go see the wildlife on their own. And so David and I were left back at the hotel and he abused me then. And later when I had come out to my parents and told them this, my mom said that she had an inkling then that something was wrong and that she should have turned around, but she didn't have my dad turn around. She didn't think anything like that could happen with her kids. Like, throughout those times, there were many times that it happened up north at my grandparents or my aunt and uncles or the time on vacation. And then the last time it happened, I was 16 years old and I, we had already moved up to Michigan and the church here had given permission for me to use their van to go pick up my brother from Fairhaven. He stayed back and finished his degree. 
and he was coming home for spring break or something. And mm. I went and picked him up and then we were driving back and he started stuff and made me pull over on the road and get in the back seat. And that is when he actually stopped midway through and then climbed back up in the driver's seat and we took off and came home. And then really never spoke about it until I was probably 19. He came in my room one time, my parents were gone to Australia. My dad was speaking and he came in and just briefly said that thing that I would do when we were younger. And I was like, yeah. And he said, I'm very sorry about that. And then just was choked up and left the room. I then told my parents probably less than a year later. And when I told them, they said, yes, we already know David told us three months ago. And I was like, you never came to your daughter to make sure she was okay. And so then from there on out, it wasn't until I was probably 21 that the pastor at the church found out. Mm -hmm. And so nothing happened. Like I didn't go into therapy or anything during this time. But once the pastor found out, he told my parents, get her and David into therapy. So we were sent to therapy in Mason, which is about 45 minutes away from where we had lived, where we were living at the time. And my parents made us drive together to therapy. Mm. We didn't have therapy together. It was back to back. And so one would just wait for the other. And I remember that being um, a huge deal to me because it, I hated therapy then. I didn't want to get help at that point. And so I did. There were times that I got into things that weren't a good situation for me or for others. And I would then not really go to church, but on Sunday nights because they played volleyball and I wanted to play volleyball and I didn't want to be around the church people much. And so then at that point, my brother was still the children's church youth pastor or children's church pastor. And he then there was just signs that were things weren't correct. He was going to a life coach, which for his job. And that was more that wasn't what he needed to say just for context too. So what's the, what's like the age breakdown of the three of you? Are you the youngest? Are you like middle? I'm the youngest. Okay. So Michael is the oldest and then there's four years and David, and then there's three years in me. Got it. Okay. Okay. So then after that, throughout the next 10 years, I, would ask why is David in charge of kids or there would be times that oh let me go back to when my parents did find out after they said that they had already known from David they said this is a family pact and we're going to keep it a family pact Mm. this goes nowhere and I was struggling and I told my aunt and I told a friend 
and they were a huge help to me. But once my family knew that, I had to be set, sat down in the family room with all of them and talk to you about how not to tell people and that this could hurt our family name, this could hurt David's business, this could hurt hmm. his, his um, family. And so, of course, I didn't want to hurt that. And so hmm. I stayed as silent as I could throughout the years. And then Michael ended up being told but he was not told the right information by my dad. And so then we come to August of 2018 and my brother had a discussion with my parents and it did not go well. And he can talk about that if he wants, but that is when they kicked me out and said that I had been wallowing in this and that this has been, I enjoy Hmm. the whole situation. And throughout those 10 years as well, David was welcome to come over whenever he wanted. Okay. And so then we come to 2018 and it blew up and the pastor knew about it. The pastor was involved and I, he let my brother sit out for a year of being the children's pastor. And now he's back being the children's pastor mm-hmm. currently. And then I was kicked out and I tried to grapple on my own and get my own place. I had an apartment that the government was helping me with. And we had friends that used to be babysitters from Pennsylvania that offered to take me to Pennsylvania and get me a new start. And if I ever wanted to come back, they would bring me back. And so at the time I was living in the same town as my family and it was just, it was too much. And so I said, I'll do it. And so I went out there and I wanted a whole new start. I was ready to start over. And that is at the time that I did turn my brother in a court on my own choice and I just fell apart and so I ended up going to the emergency room to get mm. some help because I wanted help I wanted a new start I wanted help and I ended up in like a residential rehab psych facility for two weeks and I was only supposed to be there for three or four days but the people that I was living with came in and said that I needed too much trauma therapy that for them to help anymore. And so I was left there and the insurance ran out in two weeks and then I was homeless. And I, at that point had no residency in Pennsylvania to get help. So I came back to Michigan where I have residency and have my own place, have my own job, have my own car and am doing so much better. When you say when you say kicked out, was that home only or was that the church? Did you feel like there was a push out there as well? Or I was not allowed to come to the church to Heritage anymore. It made people feel uncomfortable. And I was kicked out of there previous prior to that, like two years okay. before that. I've seen this a, a lot and I just actually interviewed someone. I'm trying to remember their name. But anyway, I just interviewed someone who wrote a book called Let Us Pray on You, and she was from Church of Christ. 
but she talks about when churches are looking again, not all churches. I feel like I always have to say that because people will say, I'm saying all churches, but a, a lot of churches, I feel like there's this kind of value system. And so when a case like this happens, I feel like they tend to weigh out, okay, he is our children's pastor. He's our fill in the blank. He's a head deacon. He's this, he's that we can't afford to lose him, but okay. She's a member uh, she's not in like a leadership position, which in Baptist churches, any woman's never in a leadership position. So the cut always seems to favor the man, and especially if he's in some kind of pastoral role. And it seems like that's exactly what your story was. It was, we'll take him out for a year to avoid the controversy and then slip him back in as soon as this kind of blows over. That's why I wanted to know about that. But Michael, I'm curious about your interaction, obviously being the older brother and finding out this information one what was your response when you found out and then how did you approach the conversation with your family when it came time to approach this and discuss what needed to happen so i was told probably 12 it's been about 12 years now i was told about it but i was also told that it happened between the age of 10 and 13, that it only happened a few times. There's nothing really to look at here. It was wrong, it was bad, but let's move on. You understand I'm in California. I would only go back for two weeks out of the year and things just weren't adding up. Susan's behavior seemed to be a whole heck of a lot more than just something that happened a few times in her youth, albeit as bad as it is. It just wasn't adding up. Some of the things that she was getting into and she alluded to some of the things that behaviors that were kept repeating itself over and over again. And I just kept asking mom and dad, is there more to this story? Is there, what is going on? And for a long time, I'll admit a long time, I laid it all at the feet of Susan, that this is Susan's problem, all of these issues, but some things happened with between her and my family, which I'm so grateful for now because it made me do some research. And that was about three years ago, I would say. I really started digging into some research about the behaviors of victims and if, you know, what they can get into, the addictions they can get into, the things that start their, yeah, sorry, this is an emotional one for me. I did a lot of research and that led to a lot of questions for mom and dad. And as Susan said, in August of whatever year it was, I had a sit down talk with them and my wife was there. And I just point blank ass like, there's gotta be more to this story. What is going on? Because it seemingly is that you're really backing the abuser in this situation or the brother and treating him very differently than you are Susan. And it's getting very toxic in this home between mom and Susan, Susan and dad. Why is this not taken care of? Why, why are we keep repeating cycles? A, we've done everything in responses. We've done everything we can. And as I started unveiling more, Susan, when they kicked her out, Susan started telling me more information. No, it wasn't a few times because you're not allowed to talk about it. So I, I never brought it up with Susan, never brought it up with my brother. And so now the story started coming out. Then it started... I got very angry because I was lied to. I was lied to. Now here you are kicking the victim out. We could have gotten her help 
a long time ago and we lost a decade. And I think that's the, the thing that bothers me the most is that we have a lost decade of a victim that we could have helped her if we all weren't so self-centered and looking out for ourselves. And I understand where it comes from with my parents and my family. Mm -hmm. I understand where it comes from because here you are leaving a ministry of 30 years. You're trying to start anew. This wasn't a decision that you tried to make or wanted to make. Here you are back in your hometown. And, but at some point, you got to put a victim first. And that's kind of my side to it. We haven't had a relationship. They haven't spoken. They've asked us not to reach out to them November of 2018, shortly thereafter, and have not spoken to us since all of this has come out. Susan's tried to come out once before. It didn't go well. So I just wanted, that's why I'm here is to just lend support to my sister. And more importantly to, yeah, we got to give context to what happened, but more help families because our family is anything great, but a lot of people know McNeely and if it can happen to our family, it can happen to you know anyone's family. And we don't want to see families destroyed over this. Our family's obviously destroyed over this. And it's something that is, near and dear to our hearts to help other people. And we've found out in the last 12 years what hasn't worked and what has worked. We got a long ways to go. We're by no means perfect. I wish I could go back and handle certain situations differently. But yeah, that's my point of view on this, seeing it from a distance. And then now the last two years having to roll up the sleeves and be really involved in helping Susan get to where she's at today. But I'm incredibly proud of her uh prior to all of this she couldn't hold a job for more than you know 30 days it was too traumatic she was living at home no money no couldn't stand for stand up for herself now she's gotten what two pay raises a, a really good job has held a job for two years now she's come a really long ways in a short amount of time and it is working what we are doing now getting her the correct help that she needs is working and that's what i'm incredibly proud of her for that's awesome yeah it sounds like it sounds like there was a lot of ownership taken over your story and it seems like there was people saying hey the story is something traumatic that happened to you this is how we need to address it because if we do it this way, it won't affect me. It won't affect our family. It won't affect your brother. It won't affect our church. And you need to stay silent. You need to deal with your story in this way, A, B, and C, which obviously stunted your ability to move forward that kept you locked into the spot of silence. So I'm curious, like we've talked about the abuse, the, the silence around it. And we mentioned a few things that have been helpful, but what are some of the ways that you've, you know, been able to move forward, been able to make some progress and what are some ways practically, and you'd know through experience, what are some ways practically that family members can support each other or even friends or church members or whoever you want to put in that group? How can we support someone who's experienced some sort of trauma? I think the the biggest one for me that I've seen is, don't make somebody heal the way that I would heal. Hmm. We all heal in different ways. And I think we tell victims what they're supposed to do in order to find healing. Hmm. That's for the victim to find. 
I'm here to lend support. I am a supporting role. And oftentimes I heard things from family and friends of Susan's doing it the wrong way. Susan's going to the wrong person. Susan's, but never once are we jumping in and saying, Hey, Susan, I've got somebody go talk to this person. It may help you here. It was, it's constant criticism. I don't think she's doing it the right way. I don't think she's, well, this is her story. This is her story to tell. This is her life. Her childhood was robbed from her. her. Innocence was robbed from her. This is her story to tell. And this is her journey to heal. Not mine, not anybody yeah. else's. This is hers. And I think we, and we do this a lot in other areas too, but specifically in this, we tell people, this is how you should feel. This is how you should heal. And we're projecting what we would do on another person. I don't know. Susan can tell you how that would feel to her or how that came across to her. But I would say most importantly, you're, we are, we are a supporting role. Yeah. What do you think, Susan? Everything that you said is spot on. I think it's very individual to the person and who the person is and who the things that they believe in. I think the victim's, a lot of victims don't come forward because they know that they're going to have to be put in a single, in a category and have to do it a certain way. And a lot of them, that scares them. And that doesn't seem like something that is going to help them. Mm. So why come forward if they're going to have to be put in categories? But yes, supporting them supporting just knowing that somebody is there and that you're loved is a huge deal it was a huge deal to me hmm. and um, don't put conditions on the love i think that's a big key too isn't it susan don't don't tell the victim i or by your actions because wor- words are just words i want i'm a big actions person actions speak louder than words uh don't put conditions on your love and it goes into another point, Eric, that uh, you're asking about is don't let religion, and I'm going to say the word religion. I'm not talking about your walk with God, your you know spiritual side of things. Don't let religion get in the way of getting a victim help. Psychologists and psychiatrists are not voodoo doctors, but that's how it's viewed in the IFB world, unfortunately, that, oh, they're just, they're from Sigmund Freud. They're from, they're, they believe in evolution. They believe, what does that have to do with has that ever come up, Susan, in one of your therapy sessions? Have they that tried to convince you of evolution and all that? No, it, it doesn't. And that's the thing that I would say is don't pull back your support if you don't agree with the decision the victim makes. And that is huge because a lot of people will support a victim up to the point of disagreement. Mm. And once we disagree on something, then I'm going to pull my support back. And to a victim, it's now I'm conditioned that I have to do things the way that you want me to do it in order to get the love that I need and the support that I need. And that's huge. I'll tell you this. I have not agreed with some of the stuff Susan's done over the last two years, but I've been there. In, I've, been, I've tried to be there in support of it, regardless if we disagree or not. Right. And that's, that is huge to, to a victim. Susan, how does you know how does it make how does it make you feel when conditions were put on the support that you needed? <clears throat> it made me not be able to feel what I needed to feel. 
it made me feel scared and closed in and boxed in. So I couldn't be feel be free to feel what I needed to feel. Because if I have that freedom to feel whatever I need to feel from all of those emotions that have been blocked up in me for 30 years now, like I need to be able to have that freedom to feel what I need to feel and it be okay. And you still love me. Yeah. No, I, I, that's something that's been really huge to me recently is because I'm reading right now uh, when the body keeps the score regarding trauma. And I also am following several people who do like trauma therapy. And and again, I always say on the show, like I'm not a therapist, so I'm not trying to give any kind of wisdom here, but like one of the things that has been huge, especially when the body keeps the score, there's a, a section of the book where he talks about early on in his medical training, he said, Oh, we have a, you know, we have a patient who's they have this, they have this mental symptom, they're whatever it was like aggression, they're, they're, you know, doubting, they're doing this, fill in the blank. And he said, what would we call that? And the doctor that was teaching him said, like, well, I would just call him Mark or whatever his name was. He just said, like, all of his symptoms, he's not a fill in the blank, some long term, like he's a human being with his own experiences that inform how he behaves. And I saw the same thing today, I follow another psychologist her name is jessica taylor but she says she says the long toxic tentacles of psychiatry disgust me more and more every day can't you see how all of our services and approaches are being influenced by the path this is a hard word to say (laughs) pathologization and medication uh, of traumatized and oppressed humans by telling you that it's you who's mentally ill society never has to change oppression never has to change nor does abuse, poverty, or violence. They can individualize your trauma and make stress and stress responses and make you feel responsible. And that hit me like a ton of bricks this morning when I read it because I see so many times where, you know, again, it's taking someone's story from them and saying, you need to feel this way. You're affected by this. Or, you know, how many times I'm sure people have said in the Christian realm, you're bitter, you're angry, you're turning your back on God, you haven't forgiven all of these different things, or even more direct attacks where people say, oh, you're acting bipolar, you're acting like this, you're acting fill in the blank with any term people want to throw at you to essentially gaslight you. Have from- you or have you seen your therapist recently? Mm, was, yeah. Was one I always got. Right. You need to keep seeing your therapist. Have you seen them recently? Right. Or, They're going to keep you the way that we want you to act or behave. Yeah. Or you're acting wrong or we don't like how you're acting, so please go see a therapist. But mm. then it came down to they hated my therapist. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think, Eric, you, you touch on a very good point that I think we're missing in the IFB world. But I will say in our experience, it, it reaches beyond the IFB world in the society, and that is the viewpoint of the victim. How do yeah. we view the victim? Because we feel sorry or sympathetic to them, Yeah. but we view them as, okay, almost as a willing participant in what happened to them. And our view of women in the IFB world is that it's the woman's fault. She's the one that seduced the man. She's the one that did X, Y, and Z. And somehow the men are getting off scot-free. Oh, it's just natural for a man, but it's the woman who tempted the man. And I think a lot of that has to go into, because we've had friends and family 
make comments like, oh, she was sexually, she's sexually active before she should have been. And it's like, wait a minute, that wasn't her choice. Why are yeah. you, why are we viewing victims in this right. way? And it's, and it's, I don't know the right word to describe it, but it, it just baffles me how we are viewing them as some drag of society. And then we never talk about the abuser and we right. never talk about the help that, that they need to get. And I know our, our circumstance is a little bit different because it's in, in the family. But I, I, I would definitely say that we need to be supportive, change our view on the victims. This wasn't something, and, and do research. Like, a lot of the stuff that I attributed to Susan's behavior, a lot of the stuff that people point to when they try to bring Susan down is look at what she did in X, Y, and Z examples. Mm-hmm. My question is, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Are these behaviors indicative of victims of sexual yeah. abuse? The answer is yes. So if she was never sexually abused, do you think she would be doing or in this, these behaviors and in the state that she's in? Right. No. So why are we using that against a victim? Why are we using these things to substantiate the decision of kicking her out, not getting her the correct help that she needs, just burying our head in the sands. And anybody that comes close, we're going to get loud and get away from here. There's nothing to see here. And that's where I would say, as a family, we have to come together for the victim. We can help in our situation, I believe, and this is easy, I guess, for me to say, but as a, as a, a brother, you can help the abuser but don't force them back into the world and into the environment of the victim until he has done everything, checked a checklist of things and gotten the help that he needs as well. And that's where I am baffled and lose it with family and friends that just want to sit back and launch. Well, look at her behavior. Look at her behavior. Look at her here. Look at her. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about the beginning. And then we can talk about, whether or not this should have, she would have been in this spot mm-hmm. had that not happened to her. And that's my thing with, that has helped me a lot is just doing a bunch of research. Get into a book, get into looking it up online. What are the behaviors of victims? Because that, that's gonna help all of us interact with a victim. Mm-hmm. Don't tell a, a, a inappropriate joke around a victim because it could trigger them. Don't. We have to have behavior modifications around victims because they are traumatized. This isn't something, and just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And that's the thing with mental illness with, you know, independent fundamental Baptists, they just treat it like it's a broken arm. And I've brought this up with people too. And I'll I'll ask them a question, go, so if you were to get cancer today, can you see it? No. Okay. So did you go to the doctor? Yes. Did you do everything you could? in order to get that treated, would, if it was a rare cancer, would you exhaust all your resources, exhaust all of the second, third, fourth opinions you could, exhaust all the medication that you could to stay alive? Yeah, I would, is the answer. Then why aren't we doing that with mental illness? Why are we putting parameters on mental illness that, oh no, it's gotta be a Christian um, psychologist, or it's gotta be a Christian counselor, or it's, you just need to pray. You it's, and we are, putting the onus on the victim when 
I can't speak for Susan, but I'm going to probably venture out and guess that they need help with that journey and they don't know where to, you know, pick up and where it's left off. And that's where I would say, do your research, get into it. Yes, it's going to make us uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to put at the forefront of our minds what happened in our family. We're never going to get anywhere by just trying to ignore it and hoping that it goes away because this isn't something that's just going to go away over time. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, Susan, what, if you could go back now and say, I wish when I shared this information, I wish that fill in the blank, this would have happened. What do you wish would have happened when your family found out your story, basically? I wish that my, I don't fault my parents for not knowing at the time what to do. They have never been in an environment that taught that. And I understand that, but after that, for 10 years, they never picked up a a book, never read an article, and they have attested to that to try and understand. They would come to me and ask me what they should do. And I don't even know all the time what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm navigating the, the waters myself. I wish that they would have done more research, Michael said. My dad taught classes, so he studied, he knew, so he had the time. I just I also wish that they wouldn't have attacked me more than than they did David. More, I should say, they should, I wish they would have treated me the same and equal hmm. because I wish they would have gotten my brother therapy and sent him maybe to a rehab place. And I wish that my family could all be here right now and all be attesting to, hey, this is what happened. But David got help. We all got help. We researched and we're here as a family to tell you what can be done and what was a success story for us. But not everybody's here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was listening to another podcast the other day and they were talking about like the difference between stupidity and ignorance and it's okay to be stupid and to not know, hey, this, I didn't know this. But when you choose ignorance, you can fix stupid. You can research, you can fill in that blank. But when you're choosing to be ignorant to a situation and like you said, I, I'm a parent and I've talked to my wife, especially doing this show, like what would we do in A, B or C situation? And I don't know. I know vaguely what I what I think I would do in certain situations. But yeah, every situation is different. And again, there are no case, like for every similarity, there's a million different variations. And what's helpful for you might not be helpful for the last guest I interviewed. And what help, helps this person might be detrimental to the next person. And, and that's okay. That's okay when you get the information to say, I don't know how to help. I'm here to help. But if you go another week or another two weeks or a few years or 10 years later, and you've never made an attempt to research or figure out how do I even, even researching like half the books I read are how do I talk to someone in a way that's not going to 
evoke a bad reaction or how can I address the subject without crossing a line or a a boundary that I shouldn't cross. And I've probably messed up a million times doing this show trying to do that. But the, the biggest crime is if I sat here every week and never picked up a book, never listened to something, never talked to someone to ask, what do you want when I'm trying to approach this? And there's so many people that get stuck with, we don't feel that it needs to be addressed and the buck stops there. <laughs> There's nothing past, we feel uncomfortable with the subject, so you need to, as a person this happened to, you need to sit there and just be okay with that's where we're at. And because that's they're I, not willing to address their own issues and their own pride. Right. And if they're going to do something, like I feel that either you're going to either set an example or you're going to be used as an example. Mm. And they've chose, they have chosen what they're going to do. And I just feel like that. I don't know. I think Susan, it's something that it's okay for us not to know as family members. It's okay for us not to know how to help, but the victim also needs to know that we're there to help. And if you need anything, I'm there. And I think that's the key. And that's where we, as extended family, dropped the ball. Mm -hmm. We did not make it crystal clear that there was unconditional love and back it up by our actions. We did not make it clear that this is something that we really need to set aside whatever religious viewpoints that we have that are going to conflict with the healing of a victim. We did not do those things. We failed at those things. And that's where I would encourage extended family, if a victim is within your family, trust that the right thing is being done by the parents, but verify. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we will not stamp out and extinguish in our society until more people will step up ask the uncomfortable questions to their brothers, sister, aunts, uncle, whoever it is, ask those uncomfortable situations, questions in order to help a victim. Because in the end, the victim needs to be the one that is shown unconditional love. It's backed up by our actions and we aren't gonna be silenced because we don't want to offend a sibling or some family member by doing this. And that's where I would say for me personally, it's. It it hurts a lot to not have close family reach out and get the other side of the story to just delete you, block you for what? Like mischaracterize because I am disagreeing. Those are the things like not once has many of my extended family have not picked up the phone one time and said, Michael, what is going on? How can we help? Instead, it's a lot of the cousins, the younger cousins, showing their support and acting like adults. But I I would definitely say that if there's a victim in your family, step up, ask the uncomfortable questions, and make sure that victim knows that you're there for support. Whether it's driving them to and from a therapy session, whether it's, hey, if you need me at two o'clock in the morning because you had night terrors and nightmares, I'm here, my phone is on. Those are the things that mean a lot to, the, to, to a victim and things that I learned. I'll, I'll take it a step further. One of the disconcerting things in this whole situation are people that had an opportunity 
to step in and do the right thing. Because within our family, it was chaos. Nobody knew what to do. Nobody knew how to handle it. Nobody knew answers. Nobody. It and it was, was the elephant in the room that no one wanted to talk about. But then you have a pastor who aren't they God's, and I'm putting them in air quotes, God's chosen person for that church. Mm. Aren't they the ones that are supposed to do the right thing and supposed to be trusted to do the right thing? Yet the pastor of Heritage Baptist Church had six opportunities over the last 12 years to report this and chose not to as mm. a mandated reporter because of a friendship, a relationship with someone that angers me almost more than how we as a family handled this over the last decade, because you are supposed to be the trusted person. You are supposed to come in as the outsider and say, Hey, this is what we need to do X, yeah. Y, and Z. Not just say, okay, I asked a highway patrolman and he said, I didn't need to do anything. My hands are clean. Well, why do you think that's acceptable? Why are we not going to report this because we're scared that the church is going to be marred? Are we not going to report it because we have a friendship with certain parties that were involved in this? Yeah, That's where we are not going to take care of this issue in our churches, independent fundamental Baptist circles in society as well, until more people start saying, you know what, I'm going to do the thing that needs to be done, even if it's hard. Because the easy thing is to do nothing and cover it up and hope it goes away. That's the easy thing to do. But why aren't pastors, more pastors, and we talked about this last week, Erica, why are more pastors willing to say, hey, this isn't an easy thing to do, but we, I need to take you in and report this situation. Whatever comes of it, comes of it, but I need to report this situation. And I've got everything from text to, to emails from the pastor because he tried to insert himself into it to help. I think it was more to keep tabs on progress and what was going on than anything else. But the two-sidedness of him telling certain things to one side and then turn around and tell me something totally different. But not only that, your insurance company made you go through a little seminar on child abuse victims. You say that you're a counselor and have materials about how to handle child abuse. Yet when you were faced with an opportunity to do the right thing, you chose not to do it. Yeah. That's a me. How can you stand up as a pastor in a church and be trusted when given the opportunities to do the very things that you preach about and say that you will do, you failed. Yeah. And we're complicit in the cover-up. And that's where... Someone from the outside has to be the voice of, hey, let's work together on this and come in. And pastors aren't even equipped. And I think we talked about this in the last podcast. Pastors aren't equipped to handle this kind of trauma. It takes doctors. Susan's been to, to, to psychologists. They go to, what, school for 10 years plus for this? And some of them didn't even have the answers. I have two so, therapists right now. So how do we, how do pastors think that they're equipped to do this? In, in my opinion, a pastor needs to understand his shortcomings in this area and lend the prayer support, the moral support, the checking in support, 
the I'm here for parents, family, and victim support. Not, hey, I can handle this. We're going to try and counsel you yeah. to the victim. Plus two, I think, and, and you just brought this up, Susan. I, I think it's important, but like talking about seeing two therapists, getting in touch with people who can help. And yeah, not everybody has the answer. And I think one of the big problems people have, especially in church counseling, I've seen it, but I, th- I think any the way most people view therapy and how I viewed it up until uh, a year or two ago was it's a very linear path of something happened. My view of therapy was always if someone has a breaks and they have their breaking point and now they're, now they're too far gone where they need to go get special help and now they can get back on track, they'll get back to being normal and then they're done with therapy. And it's, it's such a backwards way of looking at it. And, and the way I see it now is more, it's not necessarily to fix as much as it is to maintain. But there is an element of fixing for sure. There's things that you understand. I stole like 20 minutes with uh, one of the trauma therapists I interviewed and talked to her a little bit about me. And she gave me like one or two things. And I was like, oh, that just blew my mind. <laughs> but we don't look at someone going to a checkup at the doctor and say, oh, are you almost better? It, it's you're, you go in to make sure, like, am I missing something? Is there something I'm not understanding? And I think one of the big things with this show I hope people take is just I hope this destigmatizes some of the ways that people think about going to therapy and understanding that one, I'm at the point I think everybody should go at some point. I and I say that as someone who like I still need to just nail down and figure out where I'm gonna go. But I've taken a few steps in that direction and trying to figure that out. But I, I think everybody needs to at some point. And I think also I don't think you need to look at it as here's an end in sight. For and, and for one, like I said before, you're not broken because of what happened. You're Susan and you have A, B, and C that are circumstances that this is going to help. And I think everybody, every, everybody listening to this, I just hope that there's always an understanding like that we have a way of looking at, like, oh, they need this or this other person needs what after what they went through. And I just hope everyone listening just takes this as, hey, it's okay to go. There's a, there's opportunities for you to work through things that people don't understand. Your pastor can't diagnose certain mental issues. That's not their field. Can they help in other pastors that are very helpful in being someone you can talk to and they're supportive and yes, a hundred percent, but you, your doctor can also pray for you to feel better when you have a heart attack, but you don't want him to be the one doing your triple bypass. So it's just an important way to look at it. And I, I appreciate you being open and sharing about that because it is, it's sad, especially in religious circles that there is such a crazy stigma mm-hmm. because it, it is, it's, it just makes sense. Like, why would you not go? Like, why would you not get help understanding how your mind works when we spend thousands of dollars trying to figure out why our body's doing what it does or why my ankle creaks the way it does when I go up my stairs? Yeah. Just because it's not like visual. Yes. Yeah. Injury doesn't mean it's not there. Right. We're hurting. Yeah. We're hurting. How many times have we hurt? We feel the pain. We don't know what it's stemming from. We don't know yeah. where it's coming from. And a lot of times we as mentally, we're hurting, but we don't know from where. So if I'm hurting, I'm going to go to a doctor mm-hmm. and I'm going to get diagnosed. And that's what I go to therapy every other Monday. I'm in with the, over the last decade, 
I've probably gone off and on for maybe five to six years. I'm not ashamed to say it. I highly recommend it to everybody that has left the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement, especially we've seen on our group how many people are, hey, I'm just so lost. Yeah. Getting out of this world that I've lived in, and it's been my world for X amount of years. I don't know where to start. Start with a therapist. Good. And, There's nothing and I, better than talking it through with someone that you can trust. It's going to stay there. Yeah. And I will say that people who have had bad experiences with therapists, the first one doesn't mean it is the one for you. It can take a little bit. So don't get discouraged to find the best one. I have two because one helps me in one area and the other helps me in the other area. And, yeah. and I would like to say, Eric, I know we're, we're wrapping this up, but I, I'd like to speak to family, <clears throat> excuse me, extended family members out there that have a victim in their family. A lot of times you don't know, you don't want to say the wrong thing. That is the biggest fear, is it not? You don't <laughs> want to say the wrong thing. So we default to saying nothing. Yeah. If you know a victim in your family, it would just mean a ton to them to just say, hey, I'm here. If you ever need anything, let me know and I'll be mm -hmm. there for you. That's all you have to say. Let them know that, it's, that you're there and that they have people out there that are in their corner and not because silence to a victim can come off as, well, they don't agree with me or I'm different than everybody else. Yeah. And we don't want to treat them differently. We shouldn't be treating them differently. We shouldn't be, uh, we should be reaching out to them and just, so, so oh, to all those family out there, if, so even if you're a friend and you somebody and you don't know what to do, research, please understand that you may have to have some behavior modifications around them and be okay with that. Understand that you may not agree with how they go about things and don't, project how you would uh, do something onto them. I guess those are the best things that I could say in all of this. Susan can attest that Susan, have you ever felt me force you to do something, do any of this through the journey? No. no? Okay. I'm just, and I'm nothing great, but I've had to learn this. We failed Susan. I put myself into that category. We failed Susan over the past decade. It's time for us as a society to wrap our arms around these victims and show unconditional love to them in this time. Mm -hmm. And if that takes being coming on the podcast and doing it great, if it takes just reaching out in secret, because there's those out there that I'm sure it's just too much for them. Know mm -hmm. that we are, there are people like us out there that yeah. are willing to help that have been through this and are willing to stand with you in this arena. So your voices are being heard. Family members may not know how to go about this. And if they choose, as you said, Eric, to be ignorant, then you know where they stand and they're not gonna be with you. Okay. And you can make your choice as a relationship from there. But I, I, I stand with, and I, I stand with my brother too. I would stand with my brother if in my parents, arm in arm, how can we fix this? How can we, we've lost a decade, how can we pick up the pieces and move on? I would definitely do that for the sake of the family. 
that being said, we're going to first and foremost put the victim and her well-being in the, uh, in the front. And that, that's where we have to understand this goes way beyond anything that we can help with at certain times and at certain levels, but we need to have accountability and make sure people are getting the help that they need so that we aren't repeating cycles because our family was all about repeating a cycle with this. And it wasn't until two to three years ago that we had to do, and you're going to have to roll up your sleeves. You're going to have to get into the muck and the mire of where they're at. I I liken it to, so I've got my um, uh, dive master certification. I love scuba diving. That was a passion of mine. Some, sometime I have to tell you how I tricked my wife into getting hers. But uh, the first thing they teach you when you approach a drowning victim, never approach them from the front and never let them grab you because then you're both going under because they're panicked. Their, their lives are flashing before their, their eyes. And so you come up from behind and there's a certain way that you grab them and you take them back to the boat. It's the same way with victims because they're in the muck and the mire. They are in some very dark places in their minds. There've been some things that we cannot sympathize with because we haven't been there. We can empathize, we can't sympathize. And it's gonna take rolling up our sleeves, helping shoulder that burden. So be in a very good mental capacity in order to do it. If you are not in a good place mentally, support from afar. Because you're going to get dragged down into the muck and the mire with the victim, and then it's going to only damage and hurt the victim even more. If you're, and I'll say this, there's probably things that I've done the last few years that have damaged Susan because I wasn't in a mentally good place. I've been in a very good mental place and work, still working on it the past six months to a year, but it didn't help when we were feeding off of each other in the muck and the mire in the same, you know, mental capacity. So I, I just encourage you be in a good place mentally to help them be ready to roll up your sleeves and do some hard work. Be ready for that two o'clock in the morning phone call. Be ready for wide range of emotional swings. Yeah. Be ready for, there's a lot of things I can you know tell you to be ready for, but until you experience it. Yeah. But I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a lot that goes into it. And be ready, be prepared, but be supportive. Right. And unconditional love. And that's what's going to help victims in holding them accountable and getting them to therapy. And maybe if you want to, Susan, to wrap it up, I'll let you share what, if you want to, some of the therapy that you've gone to and has helped you as a trauma victim above and beyond going to counseling. That's what I would, that's my heart and my goal for this podcast is to help families that if it's happened to you, here's how we did it and we did it wrong and we failed and here's how we've recovered. And look, look she, I'm, I'll say it again, I'm so proud of her. Holding a job for two plus years, getting three promotions, getting pay raises, living on her own, being emotionally and mentally stable. It's, it works, it works. We just have to set aside a lot of the ways that we view victims, a lot of the things that we think will work and listen to the victim tell us what is working and what is not working. Yes. Um, 
yeah, I, you were saying, like, like, I would say that you, if somebody wants, what needs to be done is people have to be willing to work hard and work. It's not easy. It's hard work. And they have to be willing to do it. Otherwise, there, I would rather have more pain right now and work on it right now and have a future life in front of me of happiness and love and enjoyment and a great life instead of not wanting to work on it and turning a blind eye to it and just hoping it's not there or go away does not help you. It just sets you up for misery down the road. And so I would say with ending that, like Michael, you said, just getting therapy helped me, but it wasn't the only thing I had to do my own, my be willing to do my own work as well. And I've got books, I've done workbooks for PTSD and trauma. I'm doing one right now and those have helped tremendously. Hmm. And um, listening to podcasts, uh, listening to books on tape and being willing to do the work myself yeah. and being willing to do the work and not just hoping it's going away because I want a good life in the future and I am starting to see a glimpse of that and it's awesome to me and I couldn't do it without my brother and I wouldn't be here without him honestly it and so the fact that we both put in a lot of work for this and we're starting to see the outcome, there is hope. It's not all doom and gloom. It will get better and you will have a better life. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's important for people to know. And it is, I just know from talking to people that is like a fear is like, is this, was that the end of my story? Was that the, was the traumatic event? it is that the defining factor and i've had people come on the show who say even i people are saying i'm a victim or i'm this but then they change like i'm a survivor i'm even the way that they view themselves changes as they grow and have support and like i said it's never going to be like oh i got to the point where i'm done (laughs) like i'm done you know moving forward i'm done but i think it's amazing like the progress you've made is obviously amazing and i'm glad that you have a support behind you. And I, I know that from, it's why he's been on twice, but I know that's what Michael's <laughs> been like that with me, even doing the show. And I'm not at all comparing my story to yours, but just doing the show and doing interviewing people. And there's been plenty of times where I've needed that support. I came close. I mean, last month I was like, should I stop doing this for a long time? Should I pause this indefinitely? And just knowing someone's behind you where if you do feel like you're about to just collapse. There's someone there that has your back. It makes it easier when you're getting email from somebody or you're getting your self-doubting or you fill in the blank with any other thing. It's good to have someone in your corner that supports you. And it's yeah. okay to collapse Yeah, too because I did it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. I, I think that that's important too, is like there's no wrong way to handle the emotion because your emotions are a natural reaction to whatever 
stimulated that response. And it is okay to collapse. And likewise, it's, it's also important to remember you have to keep, same thing, you have to keep making that progress, keep looking into it, keep growing. And it, we're all going to grow at different rates and move at different paces. And that's fine, whatever that situation is. But, but yeah, I, I think that's awesome. I think there's a lot of stuff there that's going to help people who are either in a supporting role or in the role of someone who needs support. I think there's a lot of information that's going to help people. Is there anything you'd like to say if someone's listening to this who, and maybe we've already covered it, but to someone who maybe has had a a traumatic experience, if you could give like one word of encouragement before we wrap up, what would you say to them? If they're sitting there thinking, oh, I don't know how to even start. I don't know where to even go from here. I would say find the closest therapy that your insurance takes and start going to therapy and getting help because they will show you they have resources that they can give you Hmm. because they won't just be the only resource that you need. You'll need more like books and they'll be able to point you to those places. I would, that's where I would start in making sure I have a circle around me. Hmm. Small is fine, but making sure I have that circle around me too. Right. Yep, for me, I would say if you're a victim out there and you don't know where to start by just texting, messaging, emailing somebody that you are close to, that any of us, I, I think I've shared this to, to you as well, Eric, you know, maybe starting a somewhat of a database for all around the country of if you're here, reach out to this person, they, they can help. And maybe this can jumpstart some of that in our community and in our group of, hey, this person, you come to our group, reach out to myself, reach out to Eric, reach out yeah. to Susan. And between resources, we can find somebody who can help you or point you in the right direction. There is hope. There is love. There is a voice a big voice out there that wants to stand with you and behind you. It can be scary, but we have to face our inner demons in order to have a happy life. Because if we lock them away, they're going to come out at some point. It's a matter of when, not if, and it's going to be very ugly. And the the further you get away from it, the uglier and harder it's going to be. And we've had way more of an uphill battle because we had a lost decade than if we would have done it. So take it from our experience, reach out to someone. We're all here to help. I know it's a trust factor. I know it's a huge to be able to trust somebody, but reach out to a family member, a loved one, a friend, any of us that will help you and point you in the right direction and help you get started. Cause once you get started and going in the right direction, you're gonna, there is hope. As Susan said, there is hope. Right. You do have resources, you have people behind you, and it's just a matter of reaching out. Make that first phone call. Yeah, that's awesome. No, and I'll definitely say, just wrapping up here, I know everybody listening, they're, the worst voices are usually the loudest. You'll have two or three or four, maybe everybody in your family that's going to be feeling a certain way, or maybe you know, your church or fill in the blank. But just from this show, there's thousands of people listening who are very vocal and supportive and some of them I'd be, <laughs> I'd be scared to see what they'd do if they knew someone did something and, and they, they are, they're aggressively protective and, and caring for people who have come forward. So even if you have 
absolutely nobody and you feel like there's nobody there, definitely reach out. Even with me, I've mentioned this in messages to people, but if I know I'm a guy, so like maybe reaching out to me doesn't feel comfortable. If you send me an email, you don't have to tell me any details of your story. If you're a female victim, I'll connect you with someone who could talk to you who's a female who would understand and, and be able to take that information in and help. I work quite a bit with uh, Joy Ryder from Out of the Shadows. I'll put her information in the show notes of this one. But she has her own experience. She helps women who've you know been abused with the legal side. She helps them understand the mental side of it. And she's been there. If you've been hesitating to reach out, just send an email, preacherboysdoc, uh, preacherboysdoc at gmail.com. And uh, I'll connect you with somebody that can help. There, There is somebody that will listen, that will care, and that will be able to help you. And like I said, there's tons of people just in the Facebook group that I know would rally around you. And you'll find those people that you're drawn to. But I, I appreciate both of you coming on and, and sharing. And I think this is, again, I think this will be helpful for both supportive figures and for people who are in need of support. So I appreciate both of you coming on and sharing pretty openly about your situation. So thanks for having us, Eric. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.